0: The FT. Hello, and welcome to Best of the Financial Times podcasts. I'm Henry Mance. This week, we're talking about wirelessly hacking into cars, why David Cameron's political future is not as bright as it seems, and whether employees really need job appraisals. First, hacking. It's been a rocky time for Fiat Chrysler, which had to recall 1.4 million vehicles after a couple of know it alls managed to hack into the systems of a Cherokee SUV and control it from the comfort of their sofas 10 miles away. Our European tech correspondent, Murad Ahmed, spoke to our car correspondent, Andy Sharman, about how this came about.
1: The story began when Wired magazine published an article on Tuesday. Now, the writer of this piece, Andy Greenberg, took a Jeep Cherokee onto the highway in Missouri and allowed himself to be hacked by two cybersecurity researchers, Chris Valasek and Charlie Miller. Now, at first, the hackers took control of things like air conditioning, the radio, the windscreen wipers and the screen washer fluid. But then it got serious. They cut the transmission, meaning the accelerator stopped working, which you'll understand is not a great thing to happen when you're on a busy stretch of road outside St. Louis.
0: All this triggered the first ever hacking-related recall in the US. But some caveats. The hackers took a year to prepare their malware. Fiat Chrysler has now issued a patch – And there have not been any public hacks by genuinely malevolent forces. Even so, the hack used the wireless connection that allowed Fiat Chrysler's cars to access the internet. And that's troubling, given how much hype there is amongst car makers about increased technology. So what can they do?
1: Analysts are saying that this means we're going to see more use of so-called over-the-air updates by car makers as well, which means that you can release a software patch that can be downloaded via a Wi-Fi connection, That's a solution, perhaps, but it's also a potential problem because opening yourself up to that kind of connectivity could allow malware into the car itself. So the big challenge is balancing these commercial pressures to incorporate more and more tech into the vehicle while making sure you always stay one step ahead of the hackers.
0: An alternative would be just to give up on connectivity and keep cars off the internet.
1: I'm sure it has crossed the minds of some chief executives in their darker moments, but it would be a bold step for a car maker to come out and dial back the connectivity when it is something that consumers seem to be screaming for. They do want the car to be a smartphone on wheels. Now, that's not to say that all cars have a high degree of connectivity. There are some sports car makers, for instance, who deliberately just focus on the driving experience and tend to make the connected experience more muted within the vehicle there are also some entry-level models which, because of cost reasons, they try and limit the number of gadgets that they have in the car. So increasingly you could see people dialing back their aspirations and, and wanting less connectivity in the vehicle. The other option is perhaps that we could start seeing cars with kill switches.
0: Hacking has become a headache for a whole range of companies, not just car makers. And one of the potential options that's been suggested is fighting back where frustrated companies try and launch attacks at the very hackers who are coming to get them. I'm joined by Christine Spolar, our investigations editor, to discuss what's happening out in the corporate world. Christine, is this realistic that companies who are being attacked should go on the offensive?
2: Well, one, it's against US law. So a lot of the hacks that we know about, whether it is Target or uh, Anthem Healthcare, you can't hack back according to US law. So what companies have done... And we've spent a week looking at cyber insecurity, as we say at the FT, in a series of stories. And they are hiring experts for security within the companies. They are creating malware labs within their own companies. And in one story this week, Kara Scannell and Gina Chan were showing that the banks, which are the most targeted for hackers, have gone out of their way to try to create a whole industry within you know, their institutions to protect themselves.
0: And what's the kind of complexity around that? Because these guys have huge amounts of resources. Banks can throw money at this problem. But I guess their systems are very big.
2: Well, part of the problem is there's been a lot of mergers. So you have banks and and companies that have acquired other companies that their systems don't quite work together. So you're patching and there's vulnerabilities throughout. What Kara and Gina were finding early on, they looked at the U.S. government, which you would think would have a very good security. The U.S. is far ahead in technology. But they found with the federal agencies themselves, they couldn't keep up. And we went through 10 years of reports looking at, you know, they hadn't done some basic things like two-tier authentication. Now, the banks and the industry, and industry is farther ahead than the government, but it is a catch-up game. There are armies, if you will, of hackers out there who, for whatever reason, they could be individuals, as we've seen, just wanted to see if they could get into systems. Or, you know, they're actually spying, so you're they're into these systems trying to get information.
0: the u s. federal government has been maybe one of the most embarrassing cases of cyber insecurity. I mean, what's some of the the details of that?
2: We saw the Office of Personnel Management, which you know is the repository for all the federal workers. That has been hacked uh, a couple times now, and there are millions of people at risk, the federal employees' personal information at risk. And we found in one circumstance, if the government, one agency, if it would have spent $4,200, Department of Energy, uh, $4,200 on a patch, they could have averted spending what are going to be tens of thousands, likely millions of dollars for years to keep monitoring the credit records of their employees. So there's costs all along the way, but you have to decide when do you invest in this.
0: Great. Christine, thanks very much for joining us. Back in Britain, a lot of the political focus is on Jeremy Corbyn, the left-winger who is now favourite to win the leadership of the opposition Labour Party. Plenty of Conservatives are laughing about that, and David Cameron must be one of them, right? Well, not exactly, our columnist Janan Ganesh explained. The problem centres on two things. One, the upcoming referendum on EU membership. And two, Cameron's announcement before the last election that he wouldn't stand for a third term in office.
3: When he said that, he did intend that his date of departure would be closer to 2020, maybe a year or two uh, before the election, uh, than now. And my argument about the referendum is that if it happens early, I think he could be gone reluctantly against his wishes within six months or a year of that referendum. And so he only ends up serving another two years as prime minister when in fact he has all the political momentum and all the weakness against him in the Labour opposition to actually serve out much longer than that.
0: But hold on. What if Cameron wins the referendum? Won't his authority be reaffirmed, making him kind of a centre-right British Alexis Cyprus? I think
3: Britain can negotiate enough to keep the public happy and make them grudgingly vote to stay in the European Union. And that might be something to do with access to welfare benefits by European migrants coming to these shores and maybe some protections for non-Euro countries in the, in the voting um, institutions of the European Union. I don't think David Cameron can negotiate something that will please, say, a quarter to a third of his party who are the most strident Eurosceptics. They want something pretty spectacular, which I don't think is on the table.
0: So just to recap, here's the scenario according to Janan Ganesh.
3: The most interesting thing that will happen during David Cameron's premiership is this referendum. Once it's over... I think all of Westminster will start saying, well, the central moment of your time in government is over. A lot of Conservative Eurosceptics will be angry if the country has voted to stay in and David Cameron has encouraged them to stay in. And you'll see his authority dwindle, I think, pretty much immediately.
0: Which makes the last election sound almost like a Pyrrhic victory. Finally, job appraisals. Lucy Kellaway, our management correspondent, does not praise big companies very often but this week she was thrilled by a video from the head of consultancy firm Accenture.
4: In the space of a minute, Pierre Nanterm said something wonderful. He is going to free all 330,000 of his staff from the charade of the annual job appraisal. We are not sure that spending all that time in performance management has been yielding such a great outcome, he told the Washington Post. Once a year, I share with you what I think of you. That doesn't make any sense. People want to know, am I doing all right? No one's going to wait for the annual cycle to get that feedback.
0: Accenture is not the first company to do this.
4: Earlier this year, Deloitte started to dismantle its extraordinarily cumbersome appraisal machinery, which takes two million hours a year to churn out one appraisal each for 65,000 people. If you think of that in terms of opportunity cost and assume that even the most junior Deloitte people hire themselves out for £100 an hour, the firm has been wasting at least £200 million a year on a system that rewards the wrong people, demotivates almost everyone and spreads boredom and cynicism all around.
0: Deloitte's alternative is a more flexible scheme where managers are asked basic questions along the lines of will this person screw up? And do they deserve a big pay rise? But Lucy Calloway has an even simpler idea.
4: To replace annual appraisals with nothing at all. Hire only managers who are able to manage and who are good at telling people how they're doing, not once a week, but all the time. If they aren't up for this, they should not be made managers. If they are up to it, they don't need an appraisal system as a crutch. They're better off without one
0: chief executives, you can have that idea for free. Although, as one letter writer to the FT pointed out, if you don't have an annual appraisal meeting, when will you explain to employees about their annual lack of a pay rise? That's all for this week. We'll be back next Friday. Thanks for listening. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.